0: Sunday, November 13, 2022. Welcome to the 39th episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can subscribe as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News audio podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining me today is democratic strategist and founder of Third Degree Strategies, Max Burns. Max, welcome back to The Weekend Show.
1: Thanks for
0: having me. It's great to have you back. It's a great timing for you to return because there was this thing called the midterms uh, just a few days ago, and uh, it's kind of set the country on fire for all sorts of reasons. Um, So we're going to get into the weeds of the, uh, just the, well, the strategies that paid off, certainly for the Democrats, because there was no red wave, which is what was widely predicted by the media and the media. So... That's always the worry isn't it when someone's trying to kind of decide the narrative before reality kicks in. so we'll we'll look at all of that. I also want to touch on Elon Musk and his um, purchase of uh, Twitter and uh, his well, crashing of Twitter it looks like it's uh, by the time this episode goes out, there might not even be a Twitter, so we'll we'll look at that uh, first though, I want to just mention that we have a brand new sponsor here on the weekend show, and that sponsor is Hover. If you've ever thought about starting your own business or creating a brand or maybe sharing your blog with the whole world, one thing you really will need is your own unique domain name. I have anthonydavis.com and I'm very proud to have that. And maybe you could have yours. You could find your .com or your .shop or your .tech or your .art. There's actually around 400 more to choose from. You'll be able to find that perfect domain, not just for yourself, but you could gift it to somebody as a birthday present or Christmas present. And I think that's kind of a pretty unique and modern way to give somebody the gift of their own domain name. And if you would like to get a discount, well, you've come to the right place. Just visit hover.com weekend for 10% off your domain name registration. That's hover.com weekend. And then once you gift that domain name or have it for yourself, you can redirect it to your website or to your blog very easy to set up can just be done in a few moments so for 10% off visit hover.com slash weekend max burns your initial reaction to what happened uh, on election day i mean ha- how did it make you feel obviously you're gunning for the for the dems and you've uh, you know how involved were you and and were your thoughts and your ideas did they come to fruition on election day
1: so, fortunately, what was predicted to be this red tsunami turned out to be more like a red puddle. I, I, there were not many uh, substantive Republican gains anywhere. And I was reassured to see that after debating whether Democrats should talk about abortion, whether it would be politically safe to talk about protecting democracy, or whether Joe Biden should just stick to the economy and inflation, uh, that voters did come out to vote. On abortion rights, they did come out to vote because they were concerned about election deniers. And those were, were two things uh, exit polls found were really driving voters. So despite what the media tried to sell the American people, uh, voters do actually care about democracy and their rights. And they, they came out in force to prevent this Republican takeover. And I mean, it
0: was a historic victory in a way for Joe Biden, even though we don't yet have the very final results as we are recording this this conversation, because no uh, sitting president has been so successful in the midterms in 40 years. I mean, this is kind of unprecedented, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I'm almost fine letting Republicans continue to underestimate Joe Biden. In a first term for an incumbent president, it's normally pretty common to lose anywhere from 30 to 50 seats in the House and two in the Senate. Uh, But here we have essentially a scenario where Democrats may gain a seat in the Senate. And depending on how these House races go, uh, Republicans could have a majority of one or no majority at all which is practically unheard of and something that the Republican caucus is certainly not very happy about today.
0: Uh, let's just get, get into some of the details of this. Uh, we saw that uh, Democrats maintained their narrow lead in uh, in key Arizona contests uh, back on Thursday, um, uh, you had Democratic Senator Mark Kelly leading Republican Blake Masters by 5.6 percentage points. Katie Hobbs having a much tighter lead against Republican Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake is a whole other conversation. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, she's not not going to accept the results, whichever way it goes. Um, so you know the 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 fact that the margins are so tight and so narrow i mean does that really mean that the country is literally split 50-50 when it comes to 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 voters i mean it'd be interesting to see what the turnout was because you know at the general election it was about 67% nationally which is just not enough i mean in australia you have to vote it's compulsory you're much more likely to get the representation you deserve but here. So there's still kind of apathy towards the Democratic right to a vote.
1: Yeah. And and while there's no doubt that we live in a polarized time, I mean, the election deniers who were nominated by Republicans prove that there's also the case that it's very hard for a lot of people to vote. And Republicans have made a real priority out of making it as hard as possible for left leaning voters, minority voters to vote in places like Georgia Uh, Voters are overcoming huge amounts of organized voter suppression. In places like Arizona, polling places were closed. Uh, Drop boxes where you can drop your ballot early were being staked out by gun-wielding Republicans. And I don't blame a voter for being afraid to walk up to that box when there's three guys in masks with assault rifles standing next to it. But even despite all of that, we've seen almost record turnout among young people, we've seen minority voters turn out in force. And they really are to thank for preventing these really nasty Republican candidates from making their way to Washington. And And I think Joe Biden was right to really dedicate a lot of his remarks the other day to thanking those voters for coming out and believing in democracy. So it really
0: was from Joe Biden's perspective, it was it wasn't so much about policy. It was more about you know, fighting against the, the the semi-fascists, wasn't it? It was like you choose freedom or you choose fascism, and and a lot of people were quite critical of Joe Biden. He, you know, he made two kind of fascism-based speeches, and uh, the second one was very close to election day, just a day or two a- ahead of it, and there was a lot of criticism for that also. But it does seem to have paid off. In fact. Joe Biden is kind of killing it, isn't it? You know, despite all of the ageism and the criticism of him walking in the wrong direction after a speech and calling out a, a dead uh, journalist's name, none of that really matters, does it?
1: No, and I think the media sort of enjoys underestimating Biden. They take these Republican talking points that Biden is some doddering old idiot, but you think a guy who was in the Senate since 1970 who has helped elect countless Democrats, who was vice president, may know a thing or two about how to talk to voters in a way that wins and may have a sense of what voters care about. And he stuck to his guns. He was talking about abortion at the end. He was talking about democracy and the importance of protecting our elections. And as it turns out, you know, of course, inflation matters. Of course, the economy matters. But when you're talking about losing your democracy, not a lot of other things are important. Uh, voters understand that we're not going to have strong climate policy if we have a Republican Party that does not acknowledge elections. So they came out to vote on those really immediate issues and have essentially said they trust Joe Biden and Democrats to handle the rest. And that's an argument Republicans simply can't make now.
0: I did feel that in the campaigning leading up to election day, And I'm very interested in your view here. The whole process of campaigning and the language that's used just seems very antiquated. Because the reality is that in the real world, the biggest threat to America and the, the rest of the world is artificial intelligence, is technology, is automation and climate change. And almost none of those, apart from maybe climate change, were even mentioned by anybody campaigning on either side of the aisle leading up to it. I mean, in 25 years' time, and, and with climate change, I would also talk about mass migration, which, of course, yeah. you're going to see with countries that that are, 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 you know, you, that, that you are uninhabitable, effectively, and people will, will move on mass. But these are really the pressing issues that in Europe and beyond politicians are focusing on. Especially AI. I mean, AI has the, po- the, the potential to disrupt the, the whole kind of employment sector. To the, it's, it's going to put millions of people out of jobs. None of those kind of forward looking issues are, are really talked about in American politics. It's all about Joe Biden's old and, you know, doddery and, and Hunter Biden's laptop. And I mean, it's like, it's beggars belief to me that, like, the serious issues of this planet which we have to look after because we have nowhere else to live, not even mentioned in in campaigning.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the pitfalls of having a Congress and a political class that is so much older than the country that they simply have not internalized the generational disruption these things are going to cause. They still think of automation and self-driving vehicles as science fiction when these are being piloted on American roads today, I mean, within the next 20 years, most of the trucking industry in this country will be automated. It's just a matter of bringing that technology up to capacity and bringing the regulatory structure up to capacity. And the fact that Republicans want to talk about the economy, they want to talk about inflation. But when we talk about semiconductor production and the importance of bringing that into domestic production to secure our supply of semiconductors for computers and technology. They have nothing to say. I mean, in fact, we saw that by the data, the most common argument Republicans made in this campaign was attacking transgender children. And that's simply not gonna cut it for people who are losing jobs because of automation, who are so happy at this Infrastructure and Jobs Act, who are so happy at the CHIPS Act because it's bringing employment back and future-proofing their jobs. Uh, it's always going to be the candidates talking about those kitchen table issues that win. And it's no surprise that this is the cycle where we elected our first Gen Z congressman out of Florida. And he talked about technology and he talked about social media and surprise, people were ready to listen.
0: It's very interesting. You know, your job as a, as a strategist will effectively be done by a computer in a few years time, right? Like there will be an algorithm that will be able to look at language that's used by politicians and like what they should say. And my job as a, as a broadcaster, as an announcer, even like my daily news show, I will be able to type it and my voice will be synthesized. I mean, this technology already exists. I won't have to record it every day. So you and I are already out of a job. I look at the trash truck that comes by every Thursday outside my apartment and there's one guy driving it and a huge arm that comes out and grabs the bin and tips it in and tips it. There used to be six guys riding on the back of that truck, you know, like three in the cab and three on the back. I mean, it's in in front of our faces. And that's why I want to stay with automation and, and with AI just for a minute, because it is absolutely imperative that the I'll tell you how I see it, and, and tell me where you think. I feel that our representatives, not all of them, there are some amazing ones, obviously, but there is a general lack of intellect, of, of ability to kind of see beyond what's in front of their faces. And you hear some, some of the younger ones, certainly, as you've quite rightly said, and AOC is another example of somebody who speaks the language of the future. But there is really this kind of chasm of brain. Even people like Mitch McConnell, they might be great operators in terms of manipulating the Senate. But in terms of actually being able to engage with world politics and other world leaders, you listen to the French president or or I mean, any of these leaders that they are so much more entrenched in in the modern structure and, and dangers of, of technology and how it affects people.
1: Yeah, I, that's absolutely right. And I think, in in a way, America's sort of technological moat that has allowed it to avoid wading into these super competitive areas has really put it at a disadvantage. I mean, we certainly have a lack of expertise in Congress. Our policymakers are, in some cases, learning from the people building this technology what it does and how it works and how to regulate it. And that's going to put this government at a disadvantage when we have to actually put in smart regulation to protect people. And one of the challenges is a lot of people who think about robotics in Congress, they think about the little arms building the cars in factories, and they don't understand that it's now the entire factory, that on farms in rural America, are shedding workers like at a pace we haven't seen since the first industrial revolution, because now you can completely automate so much of agriculture. And this is creating price disparities for farmers. It's creating wage disparities for workers. It's creating huge areas of economic distress and blight in communities. And so far, there hasn't been any serious discussion about what we do about that, about Agriculture policy that's more than setting soybean prices. It's figuring out how do we balance technology and human work hours in a way that smooths this path forward. Because right now we're looking at a generational level of social disruption and social unrest once this starts to move into areas that a lot of people think of as off limits to technology. And as you said, you know, in my career, poll analysis, Speech analysis, sentiment metric analysis. This is all already largely done with algorithms and machines and interpreted by humans. But we're reaching a point where that will be less and less necessary to have that many humans involved. And if we're not planning for that, we really are setting this country up for a major problem
0: where does Joe Biden stand in all this? Because, you know, he's 136 himself and he's been in Cong- in uh, in the Senate, as you say, since 1876. So, I mean, he does get it, right? And he actually, he made a speech the other day. I forget which tech he was talking about, but he was, he was explaining, he kind of explained it okay. And I was like, yeah, he kind of gets it. But, you know, if he's going to run again, which it looks like he probably will, he's kind of said he will and, and you know, these midterms would probably suggest that he should. Because of what you and I have just been discussing for the last five minutes, should we not therefore have leaders of both major parties who are able to grasp this technology and the dangers that they you know, because I'm not I'm not saying that Joe Biden doesn't have the intellect or the capability to kind of understand what the threats that are coming. But you know, arguably somebody who was 30 years younger might do a better job of that.
1: Yeah, and and I think it's kind of surprising to me, honestly, we haven't seen more of a push for a cabinet-level technology policy secretary to really formalize this, because, you know, unlike Rudy Giuliani, Joe Biden can use his cell phone without butt-dialing journalists, but that's not saying a lot. And one of the advantages in the Biden administration is that he has at least hired individuals underneath him in these policy roles, who are very well-regarded issue experts, people who come from both sides of the aisle politically, who nevertheless have a very civic-minded view of how do we monitor and how do we engage this policy in a way that promotes American national security, for one, uh, closes the glaring loopholes that we have in national security, tech infrastructure, and also helps people. But to your point, I think that we're getting to the end here. The Biden administration, my hope is, will be the last administration that does not have some kind of cabinet level technology focused position, because this is, you know, equivalent to what what hard infrastructure was 50 years ago. And to not have that is just courting a moment when we will be caught woefully off guard not just by our adversaries, but by our allies and economic competitors.
0: And here's the interesting thing, because Joe Biden very much does govern by consensus. And as you say, he has good people that work with him, aside from the from uh, the vice president, of course. But when you look to the other team, uh, if Donald Trump is to be the, you know, the ongoing leader of the Republican Party, he does not. Work in a in a. He uh, you know, does not delegate. He does not operate by consensus. It's basically him or the highway, right? Um, he is actually the 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 kind of person who is going to do more damage to the U.S. in the long term because he doesn't understand the the technology. He doesn't understand the the threats from artificial artificial intelligence. So. All the criticism that we hear from Fox and various, you know, right wing media about Joe Biden being old. It's yet again kind of projection because it's saying, well, you know, Donald Trump does everything on his own and therefore Biden must do everything on his own. And Biden doesn't do everything on his own. He's not that
1: foolish. Yeah. And and on that, I got to say Fox is right. Donald Trump does do everything on his own. That's part of the reason this country lost its competitive advantage in semiconductors and computer technology under his watch. That's part of the reason why our cybersecurity strategy, if you can even call it that, was directed more by who Donald Trump was mad at that day than by any kind of nuanced policy understanding. I mean, Jared Kushner apparently led cybersecurity policy while doing 14 other jobs and shredding some documents. So I don't know how much even was done and he time, didn't even
0: have security clearance. I mean, you know, they 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 let him through, but any other administration would have said, sorry, Jared, you can't even come into the Oval Office.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it does show that you know, there's all this investment in theatrics on the right and on saying we're going to get tough on China except when we're calling Xi Jinping a king and that we love him. And we're going to protect cybersecurity except when we're giving Russian companies exemptions from cybersecurity regulations uh, but with Biden, you really do have at least the attempt to formalize this process. And this is all new stuff. This is all things that are going to have to be built out, uh, not just with the president, but with the president in consultation with private industry experts, government experts, international regulators from other countries who have succeeded in this. And and I can tell you, you're not going to see that with Donald Trump. You're going to see six guys he met at Mar-a-Lago who are really good at at playing online games, and they're going to tell him they have a great strategy to secure the internet. And we won't hear anything about it for two years. And, and it's, it's going to be a nightmare.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of Lev Parnas, for some yeah. reason, with those photographs. Um, I, I think Joe Biden's actually meeting Xi Jinping tomorrow uh, for, a, uh, for a, a, a summit. You know, what you say about painting, you know, the, the right painting, China is the enemy, going forward, that is such a foolish thing to do, isn't it? Because all of the things that you and I have been discussing regarding AI and, and, and technology, a lot of that is coming from China. And so really to be on a, on an on a equal footing with China and to be able to compete, you need China to be an ally. And the thing that maybe people don't realize about China is that, you know, you can be their enemy from a kind of warfare perspective, but you can be their friend from a trade perspective. You know, it's it's not black and white. It's very nuanced, isn't it? These relationships.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think you'll you'll see that Joe Biden acknowledges we need to lower the temperature of communications here. If if you followed Xi Jinping's speech at the Party Congress uh, just a couple of weeks ago, he it's very apparent to the Central Party in China that. They have been disadvantaged by things like the CHIPS Act and being shut out of uh, American chip markets. And it's very clear that they're looking to respond. They see this as a national security and economic priority for them. Uh, and, and they are willing to do what needs to be done to, to meet that challenge. Now, we can make this something that works for the United States and try and bring in a sense of sort of international cooperation on this or we can go the Trump route of trade wars. But I can tell you when China holds the majority of the rare metals and the intermediary products that we need to build the things that run our economy, having them shut off the gates to us is not going to be something that helps us in the long term. And it's certainly going to drive China towards more extremism. And Joe Biden, at least, seems to understand that we need more than bumper sticker slogans here. We need to get down to the nuts and bolts of, there is a way that we can thrive together on this and continue to innovate in ways that aren't so internationally destructive. Let's
0: talk about some of the states that were battleground states previously, like uh, Florida or Arizona, that are now like pretty much red states. Uh, there's there's just no room for Democrats in places like that anymore. I mean, how, how serious is that going forward? And and do you think there's a chance that that could change any time?
1: Well, for one, I'll challenge you a bit on Arizona because Democrats are actually doing pretty well there. Uh, Carrie Lake is still trailing pretty significantly as these votes come in. Uh, and we're about to see a race there where Mark Kelly is beating Blake Masters, a man who was funded by hundreds of millions of dollars of dark money from the weirdest tech Republican bros in existence. But Florida, you're absolutely right. I mean, that has marched rightward every single cycle over the last four or five, to the point now where they're picking up a huge number of Latino voters who are coming out for Ron DeSantis, for Marco Rubio. And it's a really tough landscape there for for Democrats. I think the Florida Democratic Party has a lot of soul searching to do, and it's gonna have to restructure itself and sort of acknowledge how much the ground there has changed. But nationwide, I think we've seen some surprising movements. Oklahoma moved a little bit more blue. Uh, Virginia, where they were expecting a Democratic wipeout, stayed pretty purple. Uh, The most endangered Democrat there won her race. And I think there's probably a lot of disappointment that these states that were supposed to be ruby red this time around uh, actually looked at Republicans and said, eh, we're, we're still not sold on this.
0: Places like Oklahoma... And Kansas, you know, they had put in their own state laws on abortion uh, in in recent in recent months. And so they really were, in my view, a lot of the vote there was to do with a woman's right to
1: choose. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I think in Kansas, where you saw the the vote initially to protect abortion rights, 70 percent of all new voters there were women. And they came out, you know, as they told pollsters, because of the Dobbs decision, because the Republicans decided to take their rights away. And they were not thrilled with that. I mean, we saw that in Texas, where even though it was less successful, uh, about five in 10 voters that came out for the first time this cycle were women mobilized by abortion. This was an issue that the media kept saying Democrats shouldn't talk about because they should focus on the economy. And thankfully, you know, Democrats in these areas didn't listen to that. They listened to their voters.
0: Let's talk about Carrie Lake for a moment. Um, she's a, a former newscaster who is very slick and, and very well groomed and is a bit of a local celebrity because she's been reading the news for 20 for odd years. Um, she came out the other day that the, as we record this, the, the result is not clear for her. She's, she's about like a half a point behind. Um, She said that if she wins, she's going to give the media hell. You know, she she really is very much full on, down the rabbit hole, election denying, but with a very um, impressive presentation style. Those two things together are very dangerous, aren't they?
1: Yeah. I mean, when you have a candidate with no centering morals, that's really dangerous because they will say anything and they get very charismatic about perfecting this craft. It's not that long ago that Carrie Lake was a progressive left-wing Buddhist, and now she is a far-right, America-first Trump extremist. And, you know, she's quite understandably upset that she's not winning this race. But I note that when she attacked the race uh, a couple days ago, she didn't actually say that anything was stolen or the election was a fraud. And that's because she knows that election was fair. She's just bent out of shape that she's losing. And a lot of that has to do with organizing on the ground. I, it's still not a foregone possibility. She may win. But I would much rather be uh, Katie Hobbs right now than Carrie Lake with the way these votes are coming in.
0: And this is the rhetoric, isn't it? That if, if I don't win, it must be fraud. And and it was Donald Trump that sowed that seed, uh, even leading up to the, a year or so before the 2020 election, which he lost, just to reiterate, um... But it's been borrowed by so many candidates. Do you think the fact that many of those candidates were not successful in these midterms is going to push Trump and the likes of Carrie Lake going forward to drop this whole election rigging kind of narrative, which is probably not going to serve them very well going forward?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's sort of a split decision because you have Trump and you have the GOP as a party. And I think you're starting to see a lot of Republicans publicly saying in the Wall Street Journal, in the New York Post, on Fox, that all this election denial crap hurt us, that that we seemed insane and voters showed us the door. And it hurts them, especially because a lot of these anti-election truthers like Dr. Oz, like Don Baldock in New Hampshire, immediately conceded their elections. They didn't say the Democrats stole it from me. They didn't say they're shipping in fake ballots. They said, we tried our best, we lost. I congratulate my opponent. And now the only candidates really pushing that sort of extreme voter fraud line are Donald Trump, Kerry Lake, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and a couple other of the far right wing nuts who want to take over the Republican Party. And that there's really setting up sort of a conflict within the party of, of Republicans who are maybe eating their fill now of the Trump buffet and would like to try something less destructive for their electoral chances.
0: Well, let's come on to, you know, the potential for Ron DeSantis in 2024 in just a minute. But I just want to look at this election denial thing, because the irony of all of it is that these candidates, they criticize the election system. They claim that it's rigged, yet they appeal for votes. And then when they lose, they concede. I mean, they are cr- criticizing the very system that they are taking part in. So it's like if you don't, if you're not into it, if you don't think it's genuine, then don't be a candidate. But the, the the sheer act of standing for office gives the election legitimacy, which of course it is legitimate. So maybe it's that very contradiction that put voters off. It's like, well, if you don't believe in it, why are you standing for it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just it's so transparently stupid. And it's clear that a party that will do whatever Donald Trump yells at them to do didn't think this through at all. And now you're in the awkward position for Republicans of Dr. Oz, for example, immediately conceded the next day uh, when it was clear he had lost. And now a lot of his followers are saying, why are you letting them steal this election? You said these people cheated and now you're just letting them have this. I don't trust the Republican Party to mean what they say anymore. And well, it's good that those voters are finally realizing the GOP are a bunch of liars. You now it's a shame it took this much.
0: Now Ron DeSantis uh, did very well in Florida. He uh, was fully expected to be reelected. His—I don't know if you saw his acceptance speech. Uh, it was quite worrying, actually, the the way that he presented himself, giving himself a mandate for this kind of anti-woke agenda. He really doubled down on the fascism. You know, there was, there was no sign of any of that kind of abating. He, he really is, you know, Donald Trump 2.0. And the differences between them actually make DeSantis far more dangerous, don't they?
1: Yeah. And I think as, as much as it may hurt Democrats to hear this, you know, Ron DeSantis is now the undisputed king of Florida. He's built a political apparatus that goes all the way from local school boards up to his election protection civilian police force. There's no meaningful opposition to him within the Florida party. And even Donald Trump has started to notice that. He's become very aggressive at Ron DeSantis. Uh, But it it does create a real threat because the things Ron DeSantis is talking about, this war on trans kids, this war on voting rights, uh, overruling ballot referendums that were voted on by Florida voters because he thinks they're wrong, is a profoundly anti-democratic set of values. And now he thinks that he wants to export this nationally with a potential presidential campaign. We should be incredibly worried because Ron DeSantis, unlike Donald Trump, is no fool. He understands politics. He understands how to sell these things. And he is a much more effective uh, vehicle for these becoming law than Donald Trump ever was. And that is a real threat to democracy.
0: Do you think Ron DeSantis will play as well on the national stage? Because he's 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 not the showman that Donald Trump is. You know, he he can say the words when they're written for him. But I noticed when he did that debate with Charlie Crist and Charlie Crist put a couple of questions to him and DeSantis just stood there like a robot staring into the distance because it wasn't his turn to speak. I mean, that suggested to me that he is not particularly flexible Um And, you know, even though he made that video of him looking like Tom Cruise, well, a fat Tom Cruise, you know, doing the whole Top Gun uh, kind of, you know, I'm a military man thing. It just I mean, no one was buying that. But I I do worry that going in taking that kind of thing that works very well in Florida. I can imagine Floridians being like, hell yeah. And putting that on the national stage, It, it could backfire,
1: couldn't it? It's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. I, I find the media taking this Ron DeSantis boom uh, sort of for granted and not really questioning that part of it. I think we can all acknowledge that even by Republican standards, Florida is unique. I think to say charitably, it's a it's not a state that has a lot of reflection in other red states, and the issues Ron DeSantis is championing, this attacking trans kids, uh, especially is not something that a lot of other red state, nationally focused politicians have chosen to pick up and run with because it's just so divisive. It's so easy to build a message against. And it's, it's still unclear even whether Ron DeSantis will run in 2024. I think Donald Trump seems to think he will and is trying to dissuade him. But Ron DeSantis is also a better reader of politics than Donald Trump is. And I think he knows that his brand, he may be the king of Florida, but that doesn't draw a whole lot of water in Utah, where they actually find him kind of off-puttingly aggressive and smug. Mm. And that's certainly going to weigh into any calculation, especially when you have five or six other Republicans with national reputations putting their hat in the ring.
0: Donald Trump has turned on DeSantis or de Sanctimonious in the in the last uh, week or so. I just want to read what he posted. It was a statement that uh, he posted, I, I think it was on uh, Thursday. And uh, it starts talking about News Corp, which is Fox, the Wall Street Journal, and the no longer great New York Post, uh, is all in for Governor Ron de Sanctimonious, an average Republican governor with great public relations who didn't have to close up his state but did unlike other republican governors whose overall numbers for a republican were just average middle of the pack including covid I mean this doesn't make any sense but I'll keep reading and uh, who has the advantage of sunshine where people from badly run states up north would go no matter who the governor was just like I did and he then kind of goes on to you know Basically say that DeSantis should not be considering himself for a twenty twenty four run I mean this the language, let alone the grammar in in this uh, statement that he put out, it reminds me of that hilarious letter that he sent to the January sixth committee after he was subpoenaed, which was like twelve pages long and was just just didn't make any sense. It was just like the meanderings of, of an insane man. I mean, this is not doing Trump any favors either, is it? To kind of put this stuff out there.
1: No, I mean, this This shows you the value of having an editor or at least a friend willing to put his hand on your pen and say, you're just grabbing words out of a bag here because it doesn't make a ton of sense. And it does show that Trump is nervous. I think it shows Trump's weakness here. And Ron DeSantis has certainly taken advantage of that. I mean, Ron DeSantis knows the best way to get under Trump's skin is to pay no notice of him. And he refused to respond to any of this letter, um, which led Donald Trump on Friday to attack the governor of Virginia, another Republican who's thinking of running for president and, and accusing him of having a name that's in Trump's words seems Chinese, which is one of the stranger sentences in all of Trump's very strange repertoire. But it does seem like Donald Trump is now sort of fishing for an audience and the players who usually would amplify him are going nowhere near this stuff now because they they certainly don't want to upset Ron DeSantis, who just locked his grip on one of the most important states in the Republican primaries. And they're certainly not going to do it for a letter that is barely comprehensible.
0: But the difference is that the Republican Party is Donald Trump and Donald Trump is the Republican Party. I mean, the the, the two are intrinsically linked. And and my concern would be, well, it's not my concern because I would very much like him to run and, and lose, is that the the worship, this godlike worship that all of these evangelical Christians have and these MAGA, these MAGA base, they're not worshipping the Republican Party. They're worshipping Donald Trump, the man. He himself, as an individual, is the second coming as far as they're concerned. And therefore, he can't be replaced with the likes of Ron DeSantis or anybody, because it's Trump that they want, not necessarily the GOP.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's disappointing for me as a Christian, because if Trump is the second coming of Christ, I've, I've really misread something somewhere along the line and, yeah. and got the wrong idea. But you're right. I mean, there is this loyalist base. The challenge is now uh, we're seeing a lot of the elected officials he's used to amplify his message like Ted Cruz, like Ron DeSantis, like Tom Cotton, who used to go out and defend anything Donald Trump said on Newsmax or Fox, all of a sudden they're not available to go on TV. So it really is Trump and people like, like um, Charlie Kirk or Candace Owens who are advancing this message. And the worry is what happens in a Republican party where Trump, who has such a vice grip over operations, is starting to lose the efficacy of his message. And I think that that puts the Republican Party in a really unstable and dangerous place, too.
0: The best line that Joe Biden came out with, and he didn't use it nearly enough, in my opinion, was that the Republican Party is not the party of your grandparents. And and I, I really feel that, you know, getting back to those traditional conservative roots, is something that the Republicans are probably pretty desperate to do if they are going to put the whole MAGA movement behind them. But the problem is, you know, it's it's all intertwined at the moment, isn't it? Yep. And so uh, how, how do they move on from this? Because they could have done it when Trump was impeached, say, the second time. They could have signed off on the impeachment in the Senate, and he would have been history, and they could have, like, moved on there with with. I don't know, with the vice president or something. But they didn't. They chose to stand by him again and again and again. And a little bit like Elon Musk buying Twitter and destroying it. This is Trump taking over a party, a party of your grandparents and destroying it.
1: Yeah. And it really is damning that, you know, it wasn't Charlottesville that broke Republicans away from Trump. It wasn't January 6th. Uh, It was... The loudest criticism we've seen is because Donald Trump cost them some seats in the midterm. I mean, they had no worry about this until Donald Trump's rhetoric started to hurt them directly. And now we're seeing in the House where Republicans may have a very narrow majority that Kevin McCarthy's speakership, which he's dreamed about his entire career, is now not a sure thing. On his right, he has people like Matt Gates who say he's too soft and he's not Trumpy enough to be speaker. And we have people on the sort of more centrist Republican side who say that he's too much of a Trump bootlicker to be Speaker. So it's entirely possible that this whole rethinking of the party starts in the House.
0: You just reminded me that Matt Gates got reelected, yeah, which I, I will I will never understand. And Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, two Q and QAnon. Uh, supporters and people who just are living in a, an alternate reality. Um, I think Lauren Bobart didn't quite make it. Uh, have they announced the result of hers yet? I think she was on a knife edge. Also,
1: they have not. But- they are they are almost literally fifty fifty. Yeah, it's only about six hundred votes with with quite a few left. Likely won't know anything until November sixteenth. They're saying, but it it does not look good that she's running seven points below where she was. In a in a heavily republican district.
0: It's just beggars' belief to me that the these characters, these three, you know, these three stooges, these three amigos, are are still, you know, after all the water that's gone under the bridge, they are still considered legitimate candidates. Despite the 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 Christmas cards with the children holding the semi-automatic weapons and you know, goodness knows what it's like. What will it take to to move these people on?
1: I mean, that really is the question. I mean, for some of these people, they have such a base baked in that is a cult of personality that it's tough to dislodge them. I mean, Florida is the gift that keeps on giving in terms of crazy making. They just elected uh, for, for Congress a woman named Angelina, uh, Angela Paulina Luna, who previously her claim to fame was suing the government because Twitter wouldn't give her a blue check. She is a, a MAGA election denier. She's in many ways sort of the flashy new Lauren Boebert. So we'll lose potentially one nutcase and replace her with another. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's
0: talk about Trump's uh, potential uh, presidential run, because some advisers are now urging him to delay his announcement. I mean, he couldn't help himself the other day at a rally than say, I'm going to be making a very special announcement you know, next week. I mean, he, he just, he has no in the monologue. He just wasn't able to keep it stum. And, and consequently, now he may have egg on his face because there's a good chance that the, the, there's going to be a Senate runoff election in Georgia. This is um, with uh, uh, Raphael Warnock, of course, and uh, everybody's favorite Herschel Walker. And that could be the deciding vote for, for the Senate, couldn't it? So it's, it's going to be a all hands to the deck on both sides of the aisle. To, to make sure that, that you know, Warnock remains in that position as the incumbent.
1: Yeah, and it's important to remember the last time we had this runoff with Raphael Warnock, it was Donald Trump inserting himself into that race that many Republicans blame for Republicans losing. And, and now he wants to do that again. He initially wanted to announce his 2024 campaign the day before the midterms, then decided November 11th after this disaster for Republicans came to light, they said November 15th, and now he says, you know, no matter what people say, he wants to do it the 15th. But a lot of people are advising him, including people close to him, that this would be a distraction and a mess for the Republican Party, essentially giving Democrats Donald Trump to run on in Georgia again, where he is not as well-liked as he likes to think.
0: But he's going to do it, isn't he? I mean, he's oh, not yeah. going to take their advice because, I mean, for several reasons. One, the ego. Two, Ron DeSantis or Ron DeSanctimonious doesn't want him upstaging him. But three, he probably thinks that if he's a presidential candidate, he's less likely to be prosecuted in all of these various court cases
1: and for all of these alleged
0: crimes.
1: Oh, he's absolutely going to do it. I think there's no question about that. He can barely stop himself from announcing it on True Social right now. I mean, every every single tweet or every single truth or whatever it's called seems to end with him hinting that he's going to run for president. So if he announces he's not, I would be surprised, though this would give the Department of Justice the the unique opportunity to indict a former president who is running for president again. And I'm sure that would just be more grist for the mill for Republicans to to gnash their teeth and, and worry that they're going to blow Georgia.
0: And it's not going to stop Merrick Garland from from seeking a prosecution, is it? Either either way. I mean, a lot of people wish Merrick Garland would just hurry up and do it already. But, you know, clearly they are building a case or multiple cases along with the Southern District of New York and and various other places. But all of this will actually help the democrats won't it because you know we it's been proven that that the trump brand is tarnished and that and that the maga republican movement is not the majority of the republicans trump running in 2024 let's just say that he's not in court or in a state penitentiary and he does actually get the chance to run he's going to lose isn't he
1: i think i think it's much more likely than it was say 2 months ago Though I still wouldn't count out Trump running from prison. I mean, nothing prevents him from doing it. He'd sure yeah. love the, the theatrics of that. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think the big difference here is that when Trump ran in 2016 and and Republicans liked that he was attacking Republican leaders, he was throwing fire at everybody it's because he was an outsider. Now he's not just a former president. He's the head of the Republican Party. So those disasters in 2018, 2020, 2021, now 2022 are in large part his disasters. He's not going to be able to blame George W. Bush for this one.
0: And he's effectively going to have to relaunch himself, you know, like a, a comeback tour, because you can't a lot of the rhetoric when I watch the most recent rally of his and I try and watch all the rallies and I encourage everybody to do so, because, you know, you can't just close your eyes to him and think he'll go away. The, 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 the fascist rhetoric continues and is boiling up more than ever. But I listened to the last one and, and a lot of the language, they're still doing like lock her up for Hillary Clinton and stuff. I mean, it's becoming very tired. The act is it needs a refresh. Do you think there's a chance he might consider shaking it up a bit? Or do you think, you know, the, 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 the greatest hits of Donald Trump will just be playing ad infinitum?
1: Well, I honestly don't think he's capable of switching it up. I think he's, if anything, you know, there has been a notable drop off from 2016 in his ability to sort of wing it in a speech and find these moments and capitalize on them and build moments out of them. He's become a really rigid, rote speaker on this. He plays his hits to the crowd, to the crowd that wants to hear them. He doesn't do a lot of current events anymore. I mean, like you said, we're still bagging on Hillary Clinton. this uh, This is a candidate who does not have nearly as many people who are around him willing to work with him as he did in 2016. And it shows. I mean, it's getting a little bit boring. And he's
0: getting older as well. You know, he, he, he is older. And for all the criticism of Joe Biden for being a kind of elder statesman and beyond, Trump is no spring chicken. Uh, and I, I really feel like the, the ego will prevent him from thinking that he's aged. You know, he, he probably has convinced himself that he did on 9-11 go down there and help the firefighters. You know, he has this personality disorder where he can convince himself through the malignant narcissism that he is somebody that he is not and and probably has like reverse body dysmorphia when he's standing in front of the mirror at nighttime. I'm sure he sees something very different to what you and I see.
1: Oh, I have no doubt that when he announces we're going to get a doctor's report signed in cran by somebody that says he's 190 pounds and has the brain of a 26-year-old. Yeah, But, you know, privately, even, and now less privately on Fox after this election, Republicans are starting to ask whether he's lost his touch a bit, whether he has lost the ability to to connect with a crowd so much as just have a two-hour monologue at a crowd. And that's not going to motivate people the same way it did in 2016.
0: He always talks about the perfect phone call. And and then the second perfect phone call, which he says was more perfect than the first phone call. I've kind of lost track of these perfect phone calls now, um, but I recognise that Fox, as you say, they've kind of given up on him. How important is it for the Republicans and Trump at the helm to have the support of Fox News and and those other you know smaller cable stations that are all singing from the same hymn sheet?
1: Well, it's it's absolutely critical. I mean, Fox is the most watched, not just conservative network, but news network in the country. I mean, not having Tucker Carlson on your side is the equivalent of having essentially a third party attacking you every night and to millions of people. But there's also this very diversified conservative news ecosystem now that wasn't there in 2016. You know, he has Newsmax, he has OAN. <clears throat> but the problem is, Donald Trump seems to get into feuds with all of them at different times, so he has no reliable friend in the right-wing media anymore, and fewer and fewer of the established ones are willing to take a risk on him, given that every time he comes on, uh, they, they seem to get sued for promoting some slanderous lie.
0: He really must be very unhappy, you know. I mean, just to have a little empathy for the man for a moment. I mean, he must be looking over his shoulder the whole time, and I cannot see that, that, you know, he gets a moment's peace, really. You know, there's so much anxiety, there's so much insecurity. It, and and how his heart has not given out, considering the extra weight that he's carrying and the McDonald's that he's eating. I mean, maybe he is the second coming, simply because he has, like, 20 lives.
1: Well, this, this really is like Citizen Kane at the end of the movie. He's <laughs> alone in this gigantic house in Florida, is writing off angry messages and handing them off to people. You know, he could have just retired, gone golfing, and spent the rest of his life defrauding his supporters into giving him money. But there is this this deep core insecurity to him, this need to not just be liked, but to be the center of the universe at all times. And And the sad fact is he's just getting worse at it, and people are starting to feel, even in the Republican Party, a little bit gross about enabling it, you know, the visitor list to Mar-a-Lago has dropped off pretty noticeably over the past six months. And I think we'll probably see that continue.
0: Let's talk about uh, Elon Musk. You know, last week I interviewed Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who, who wrote the uh, book "Strong Men" from uh, Mussolini yep. to Trump. And um, she said that or she predicted that Elon Musk is a is like a Russian operative, that, that there's this whole thing is like a plant. That that you know, purchasing Twitter, and then effectively, you know, crashing it, screwing it up, shut shutting it down, going bankrupt or whatever. It's all part of the grand plan to maybe silence Democrats or cause chaos, so that nobody really knows what to believe. Which is, you know, how how the Russians kind of sow misinformation or disinformation. Um, I mean, this whole blue check mark. Shenanigans is is a disaster. I mean, I I've had a blue check mark since 2016, and I I found the email that Twitter sent me in 2016 saying congratulations, you've been verified, and I screen grabbed it and I've made it my pinned tweet because I realised like maybe that's just the way to go going forward. Um, where where do you think? I mean, two questions: what's going to happen to Twitter? But secondly, how serious and dangerous is this in terms of? misinformation losing sight from a user's perspective as to who really is verified who bought their blue tick and who earned it
1: oh this this has been a disaster i mean not just for twitter as a business advertisers are fleeing the platform now they can't leave quick enough and it's hard to blame them when when people for eight dollars can make a verified account and impersonate them and say racist awful things and get banned and spend another eight bucks and do it again, I wouldn't want to advertise there either. But, you know, from a core civic perspective, it's terrible too. This is a guy who says he wants Twitter to become the most trusted public square on the internet. And that's hard when there are 37 verified Elon Musks all sending me nonsense. And, you know, it it is terrible. The real Elon Musk uh, blocked me on Thursday for asking him a few questions pointed questions about how he's responding to scammers who are using the checkmark. Because remember, this is not just about brand. This is scammers posing, say, as uh, airline customer support accounts and then tricking people into messaging them their flight information, financial information. This isn't just hurting brands. This is creating legal liability for Twitter through crime. And Elon Musk uh, his response was, "These are very funny tweets," and I'm I'm not sure the FTC feels the same, and I'm not sure uh, the companies leaving feel the same either.
0: I mean, it's like the civil war in cyberspace, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've all been like predicting a civil war on the ground, but actually, the the the, the chaos is happening in a virtual space. I, I described it as as Elon Musk being like a backseat driver because everyone thinks they know better. So, you know, Twitter was running very well just a few weeks ago and was profitable. Yeah. And from the backseat of his Model 3 or Model X, he grabs the wheel, takes it off the road and, and basically crashes it into a bush. I mean, that's that's what he's done. And and it's very easy to say, oh, well, I think it would, you know, free speech means why should there be, you know, blue check marks for verified users? But the chaos that will ensue off the back of that, you know, every country, every town square, you need to know who the person is that's standing on top of the, the upturned soapbox, don't you?
1: You do. And I think that's the big challenge. And, you know, my dad didn't give me a, an emerald mine. So what do I know about social media companies? Yeah, But for for Elon Musk, it really does look like there is no plan. I mean, the fact is the, the financiers who funded this are now trying to offload the debt for 60 cents on the dollar, giving Twitter roughly a valuation of $8 billion on the 44 he paid for it a week ago. And that's what happens when you fire all of your verification and security staff, all of your senior executives quit, and you basically let people run wild impersonating the president of the United States if they want to. Uh, There is no security on the platform. Uh, It has become incredibly funny, I will say that, but it's not really conducive to a business. And this is quite honestly what happens when you, as Elon Musk does, want to both be the CEO and the sole decision maker, but also want to be Twitter's main character every single day. You can't do both of those. And any CEO will tell you that, but he seems to think he can, and it does not seem to be working. Well, it's very
0: Trumpian or very authoritarian, isn't it? I mean, it it is, again, it is, you know, if we fear fascism, then we should fear Elon Musk. He he is a far right operator, because arguably, Twitter was a a, a democratic marketplace. It was a a fair and free place to have your have your voice. And and if it does disappear, I will miss it. You know, I, I have, you know, we met on that you know in yeah. that sphere most of my guests i meet uh in that in that space and i've signed up for all of the new ones as well you know tribal and and all the all these new social media but they they're all a bit clunky and you know yeah. twitter has had what 12 years to refine its its product only for Elon Musk to flush it down the toilet
1: yeah and twitter is you know for better or for worse and there is a lot of worse about it but it is sort of the last place that felt like the original breath of the Internet, where people could communicate with each other uh, easily, where you had a sense of verification. Uh, but now Elon Musk is really bought into this sort of Trumpian. It's an explicitly Trumpian conspiracy that uh, what he calls the corrupt blue checks in the media, who, who he alleges have paid you know tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars for their blue checks, Not true. There's no evidence for that, but he's bought into this and he sees his view as really putting journalists in their place. And if that destroys this incredibly valuable open forum, I think he's fine with that. I I just don't think he cares that much what happens. And if he doesn't get bored uh, before he destroys it, uh, we'll be in for some very strange times. Uh, on
0: Friday it looked like the whole new Twitter blue product that you know you can sign up for and get your check mark and have less advertising and all that stuff was actually not even available on the, on the platform's online version it said sign up was only possible on the iPhone version but the iPhone version didn't offer Twitter blue as an option it's just like grayed out I mean, this this really does look like the beginning of the end, to actually visually see the platform collapsing and uh, Elon Musk's rhetoric becoming more and more insane. You know, it reminds me of uh, Lex Luthor or Biff Tannen or any of these kind of characters from from the movies just having their final moment before the castle just, like, collapses in on them. I mean where do you see Twitter going in the in the coming weeks do you think we'll have a platform called
1: Twitter in in a, in a month's time I hope so because I don't know where I'm going to spend my free time otherwise but to your point like it's this is more than just a crisis of confidence from investors and advertisers as Elon Musk said to his team you know Twitter's facing bankruptcy he said very explicitly he needs Twitter blue subscriptions to account for 50% of revenue to keep the business afloat. And now Twitter blue subscriptions are completely gone. So that doesn't seem good. And you know, so far he's given no forward plan on what's going to replace it, if anything will replace it. And he's basically started blocking anyone who challenges that he may not know what he's doing. So it's not the best place for your sole CEO and director to be in.
0: It's so funny that just a, you know, a few weeks ago when Musk was – when we heard that the deal was back on and people were thinking, oh, you know, is he going to let Donald Trump back on the platform? And I mean, none of that really matters anymore because there, you know, even if Trump did come on the platform, there'll be a thousand Donald Trump accounts.
1: Yeah, I don't know or... how you'd know. I have 600 Donald Trump's sending me <laughs> nudes in my DMs already and they all have check yeah. marks. So yeah. they're all
0: real, I guess. Well, don't download this to your computer. Oh, That's God, no, opinion.
1: I value yeah. myself too much for that. <laughs>
0: OK, listen, Max, I'm so pleased that you were able to join us again on The Weekend Show. I'm always thrilled for your uh, analysis and uh, hopefully we'll get another chance to talk again.
1: Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.
0: My thanks to Max Burns. I'm Anthony Davis. A reminder to visit Hover.com slash weekend to get 10 percent off your bespoke domain name, either for yourself or you can create create one for a friend and give it as a Christmas present. That's Hover.com slash weekend. And also subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and the 5-Minute News daily podcast, which drops every morning. You can hear me spend five minutes telling you about the most important news stories of the day. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on The 5-Minute News weekend show with Midas Touch.